Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. I'm Henry Femby-Taylor and today I'm joined by Vicky Reynolds. Hello. I'm joined by Miranda Sharp. Hello. And Dan Rossiter. Hello. So let's go around the room with our guests and get a little bit of an introduction. Miranda, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, thank you very much. How lovely to be here. So I'm Miranda Sharp. I run my consultancy called Metis Digital. Um, I think for the purpose of this podcast, I was the technical author on BSI Flex 260, uh, which was released and is now closed for comments. I'm looking for Dan to see if that's right. We don't. Um, uh, and uh, but I also do other things, um, including um, I'm a non-executive director for TRL, the Transport Research Laboratory, trustee for the Centre for Cities Think Tank. Um, I sit on the ICO Technology Advisory Panel and the Mayor's Smart London Board. I think you would know if there were still comments open because your emails would be exploding with uh, viscera. Um, mercifully and happily, the BSI run an extremely professional standards management operation, comment collation operation. Talking of extremely professional standards development, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. He says, looking over his shoulders, yes, Dan, you. Oh, me. Uh, well, um, dear listeners, you've, you've heard from me before, and it's been a while, so I don't know who I offended the first time, but I'm glad to be back. Um, so if you've not heard from me before, uh, I'm Dan Rossiter, um, sector lead at the British Standards Institution, which effectively means I stick my oar in to try to understand where gaps are, where BSI might be able to help. For my sins as well, I'm an ambassador for the UK BIM Alliance. I think I'm still technically a standards ambassador for the National Digital Twin Programme. Although next Friday. Until next Friday, it seems. And then maybe, who knows, um, and also co-convene the UK BIM framework with Anne. Excellent. Do you want to introduce yourself, Vicky? Maybe nobody knows who you are. Yeah, why the not? After the 20th episode. <laughs> um, my name is Vicky Reynolds. Um, I guess co-founder of the Digital Twin Fan Club, or one of the core Absolutely. team. Yeah, um, and uh, Chief Technology Officer for an organisation called I3PT. It stands for Independent Third Party Testing, and it's what happens when you let engineers name a company. Um, <laughs> we also have a, a software solution called uh, Cert Central, which is a bit of an end-to-end project management platform, but um, do some stuff with the CIOB Digital SIG, um, Built Environment Panel for the IET, UK BIM Alliance Ambassador, and a member of the Building Regulations Advisory Committee for the Golden Thread. Excellent. Well, I'm going to do me because I never introduced myself. So I'm Henry Fanby-Taylor. I'm the Head of Information Management at CDBB for um, the foreseeable future uh, and the delivery lead for the Construction Innovation Hub for the foreseeable future. I can only see about a week and a half in the future, by the way. Uh, I also, for about another week and a half, uh, sit on the UK BIM Framework Steering Group. <laughs> and, and, and just for, for kind of shoots and giggles, at uh, what point will this podcast come out? So to be clear, we are recording on the 23rd of March. We are indeed. Cool. We are indeed. I'm glad somebody knows what day it is. So Flex 260 Standard. Um, awesome name. Um, <laughs> Flex 260 sounds like uh, some sort of protein powder uh, to me. Uh, but the, <laughs> let's, let's get into it. I guess my first question is, um, why? There are, there are so many standards out there. Uh, what's the point of this one? What makes it special? Um, so that's a really good question. And in fact, you know, when we started uh, this debate, uh, Dan and I argued about whether or not you needed it. Um, because I'm, I'm really strongly of the opinion that you don't, you, you, the risk is you define a digital twin. 
um, and you know it, it is so broad and so wide ranging. It's like defining what a map is. You know, there's, there's no point in defining what a map is because if it does the job, it's a map. Um, but uh, conversa many conversations with the lovely Mr. Roster uh, convinced me otherwise because you said, and correct me if, you, if I'm now remembering all this madly wrong, um, that unless we define what a digital twin is, um, clients run the risk of buying the wrong thing or being sold the wrong thing by people who, um, are by less scrupulous people than we might like to believe we are. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, so that's that's what brought me. But the, what, why why else do you think we need data? Well, it's it's interesting because I think. I, and I often don't like using the word standard as a broad brush term anyway, because a lot of these standard standardization products, I'll call them for now, do different things. Because um, you, you, know, you get specifications where they just tell you what to do. You get code of practices, which are more like, this is, this is probably a good idea to do this. But you also get vocabularies, you get classifications, you get management systems, and they all try and do different things. And uh, particularly when you look at something like the innovation S-curve, where you sort of get early adopters and stuff going into things. The problem is that you have a brand new concept. You know, for now, we'll call it digital twins as the brand new concept. But actually, how can you talk about that concept with other people? And unless you standardize the language about digital twins, how can you actually have a conversation about whether they're good or bad? And only at that point, if you actually got to the point where you can actually engage with the laggards, the people who haven't been those early adopters as part of it, Things like specifications come in later, and that point is when you start to get market readiness and preparation for the market, because then they're being told, this is the way it should be done. And then from there, you get guidance, you get support afterwards, mm -hmm. that then allows business as usual. And you know this is what we see with BIM, in the sense that at the start, no one could talk about it, and you know, arguably not everyone can talk about it still, but it's gotten better. Mm -hmm. We then had the standards, and then the UK uh, BIM Alliance have done a lot of work to produce the guidance afterwards to help get to the business as usual element. So typically with this, if it's you know, IoT, digital twins, um, any form of new innovation, that, that path seems to be a fairly consistent way of looking at things. I think that's really interesting, actually. And in just a few sentences, you've made me consider my opinion on this because very early on I was of the opinion that a digital twin should never be seen as a product so we should in effect be encouraging people not to buy digital twins we should be encouraging them to um, delve into better digital processes better information management and what they end up with is a happy accident that is a digital twin at the end um, I'd never really thought of it from the concept of actually it's it's that safety for people who otherwise, if they didn't have a standard, would fall into the trap of um, I guess the uh, the vendor um, the vendors uh, <laughs> inappropriate behaviour by vendors. In, inappropriate behaviour by vendors. Yeah, I was going to say something much more um, offensive, we, so you, we, you saved me. What like Dan was saying with BIM, it was uh, a bandwagon. It became it was quite a a neatly defined term at the very start, and then as it grew in popularity, so too did the things that were doing the BIM. And suddenly uh, a survey is BIM as much as uh, a 3D model is BIM, and then there's the introduction of information management. You know, all this kind of disparate stuff started happening, and then it really needed a bit of refinement to give a standardized process so that it was clear what was being done and in the same way, this is already happening with digital twins, where people are selling static 3D models of things and calling them digital twins, mm -hmm. um, which, 
you know, from a certain point of view, I can see where they're coming from. But really, it always brings me back to one of the conversations that uh, Neil Thompson and Simon Evans had with Michael Greaves. Um, and I really enjoyed the editing of that because he couldn't understand the need for this level of specificity around what is a digital twin. He was like, it is an analogy, but it's also information model mirroring. It's about having an information model that mirrors something in the real world. And I think this process of standardizing digital twins was interesting for me because I, I went to one meeting, I stood in stood in uh, one meeting and um, it was a virtual meeting, but I did feel like uh, as I walked in the virtual room, I had to duck as a shoe was thrown at my face because it was a very, a very robust conversation about what is a digital twin was taking place because there are already working definitions out there and there are already all these different approaches to what it is and what it isn't and what it should do and um, the very specific parts of that. And I guess that's one of the not issues, but it's one of the areas of difficulty for me is that like the UK BIM Alliance turned standards into business as usual through guidance development, is there a risk that the Flex 260 is too technical, is written, is uses language that is too impenetrable for the average person, or is that a key part of the development of, of this approach? That's a really good question. And let, can we come back to the how we managed, how we how we wrote it? Sure. And I say we because I, I had an awful lot of help from Dan. There's another thing that Vicky said that made me think there. So it's not only protecting the vulnerable customer, but the, another risk that I think some form of standards helps offset is that because it's, because digital twins are, should be, you're quite right, they should be a happy accident. How do you make sure that all those happy accidents are going to add up to greater than some of their parts. Mm. Um, and only by taking that view, you know, and let's hope that lots and lots of people read the standard because it's a great riveting read, um, that only, only by engaging with that standards community have we got some hope of, the, of all those happy accidents being a, being a cumulatively good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I haven't thought about before, so thank you very much. That's very cool. And that's where, you know, what the importance is, is the fact that there is a, a large landscape of these standards and related concepts. And you know, interestingly, some of the things like, how does it relate to the manufacturing sector? Because there are digital twin standards already for the manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. And you know, with work of places like the Construction Innovation Hub, looking at manufacturing-led approaches for the built environment, there'll be a convergence of those two worlds. And actually, if manufacturing says a digital twin is chalk and we say it's cheese, then clearly there's going to be a problem there. Mm -hmm. So actually, how do we connect those things together? So it's not just cross-domain, it's also cross-concept. You know, we've got smart cities, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a whole wealth of documentation about how smart cities are meant to work. Where do digital twins fit into the smart cities concept? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where these things can be set out. And to, to, to kind of maybe take away some of the fear from, from dear listeners, Standards don't have to be followed. And I, this is Dan British standards saying standards don't have to be followed. Standards, there are different types of standards, as you said. Well, yeah, there are different types, but also they are, as designed, they're packets of convenience. You know, you can, you can go off and not do it. You know, even if you look at, and it gets tentative at times, things like the building regulations, there are no standards in the building regulations. Mm -hmm. They're listed in the non-obligatory 
approved documents which give guidance and you have a choice you can research your own solution mm-hmm. or get the convenient package that says in a context white box world something that may work mm-hmm. and, and that was the point of BSI Flex 260 which I'll now have to look up the title of uh, the built environment digital twins overview in principles so it's things to think about it's not absolutely um, steps to follow well exactly it, this isn't you know, you follow these 476 bullet points and as a result you have a digital twin. Mm-hmm. It is establishing what are the, the core concepts that constitute a digital twin and the considerations therein. So is that why it was developed as a flex standard? And could you just do a, a quick couple of sentences on what that means versus just a standard? Um, I, I'll, I'll try to without anyone switching off. Um, uh, formal, as opposed to just a standard, formal standards are, <laughs> I, I suppose, uh, are built in, in, in the committees and the idea is then there are pre-established experts who might sit there, look at things, go, we need to develop something on this particular topic. Uh, we then have introduced the PASs, um, publicly available specifications, but they can be other styles of things, which is why we tend to just call them PASs and not full name them these days because the name isn't right, like everything else in the world where abbreviations no longer fit. Um, but the idea there is that if someone as a thought leader wants to create something, they can say, look, we want to sponsor the development of this thing. They're not in charge of the direction that the writing takes, but you know, in terms of helping to work out what the scope is and isn't to achieve their outcome, and then there's technical experts, public consultation, and those sorts of things. A flex is a variation on that where instead of it happening once and then you look at it in two years, it can be iterative in the sense that whenever you're ready, you can add, develop. So it's trying to do a bit more of a sprint scrum kind of agile approach to it. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that with how nascent digital twins are and how there's so much work happening around the information management framework, I think it's now called information management landscape and some of these these bits that are happening, actually there could be some really good work that it can't wait two years to be added in. There's work happening at ISO around horizontal digital twin standards. And actually it's about being a model that allows us to bolt things in when we needed to or refine bits so that it stays good practice because of the speed at which the landscape is moving. So what's a, what's a horizontal digital twin in that sense? Oh, um, thank you for jargon busting. Um, the, the, some of the ISO stuff is looking across domains where they're actually talking about what is a digital twin and then they have some use cases in healthcare, in um, automotive kind of smart transport systems, in uh, and built environment is just one of the many facets they're looking at. But they're trying to look at you know what is a what's what's the commonality for digital twins regardless of the domains they are employed in, mm-hmm. and yeah we were cognizant of that work and we actually put a placeholder in the flex that effectively said look we know this work is coming once it's published, uh, the next iteration will weave this stuff in but we've made reference to that work because we're aware that it's taking place. Which That's... brings us neatly onto how so don't know why. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really it's really interesting that the. You know, digital twins are about managing the world around us better with data. There's greater transparency, there's data you can rely on, you can understand exactly what's happening and do something about that. But as we're discovering, as you're discovering through this development process, this creates a more connected world. So we have a world where the the road interacts with the traffic system, which interacts with the city, which interacts with the buildings, which interacts with those people within the buildings which interact with that you know we live in this complex system of systems it's really difficult to wrap your head around as a human being and, and digital twins 
by kind of bringing ourselves together into one uh, one way of thinking about this problem, one process, not a given digital solution, we are creating this need for connection. So having a flex approach seems like a really great way of um, ensuring that we can tie together all these pieces so we can actually get the benefits that we want in our digital twins. At the end. And what are those? What are those intended? What, why do we want digital twins anyway? Um, so, <laughs> so surely many of your other um, listeners, many of your other episodes will have been, will have described this, and I would refer many listeners to the back catalogue of digital twin fan club. Um, but why do people want digital twins um, in this context? Why have I seen people want them in this context? Um, the broadest answer I can give is they get data-driven cost, cost domain decisions. Um, so, um, how uh, if, if I'm optimizing a car, for example, this is not now not built environment. If I optimize the indicator light and the back the back seat, I really made a better car. No, I, I, we, we can do, we can optimize within silos because as soon as you start to aggregate problems and take a system level view, um, you're going to need um, sort of connected digital twins, and, and that's. That's the, what we were trying to argue for here. When it comes to why do you want an isolated digital twin, happily there are lots of reasons why people want them. Mm-hmm. You know, how um, if I've got a digital twin of my network of pumps, for example, um, I might be able to tell you which ones break down. You know, the ones on the side, the one, the ones in seaside towns rust before the ones not in seaside towns. Um, the one that the one that we're maintaining next week is in the middle of a listed building site and therefore need additional position. Uh, it needs additional permissions, um, and that, that that's our set. Um, and, and, and it's expensive to, to get somebody up the top of a wind turbine um, and if I had a digital twin um, or it allows me to do some form of simulation um, then you know, I, I, don't, I can train the person before they put, I put them in, in risk and danger so there's a bit of simulation and then there's a two way what can I learn about the asset from the data I get off it so that I can optimise it offline and make decisions um, prior to making changes in the environment Okay, cool so ultimately that leads to more efficient day-to-day operations, um, which then feeds into the comfort, safety, lifestyles of the general public, especially if it's, I mean, if it's a um, digital twin that's feeding into a smart city or if, if it's a, a system of systems, it's, it's for really the users and the general. Well, human flourishing humans. in general. No, and you know, at its most aggregated, you can make decisions about how much water you use to make power and how much power you need to make water. Um, and there's an answer to that question which is economically efficient, and there's an answer to that which is um, sustainably efficient. And why are those two answers different? And how do I trade off those answers? Mm-hmm. And, and the only way that you're going to be able to get to either of those answers is, is if you've got some form of digital representation um, of those two systems. I mean, it, it comes back to, and it's, it's a quote I tend to use quite often uh, from George Box, which is that all models are wrong, some models are useful. <laughs> and you know, the idea is that what we have is a chaotic system, and what we need is more, more data input to try and actually mitigate the chaotic elements of it to start to get to some sort of predictive aspect that you can then inform decisions on. And you know, uh, if, you know, it, it depends who you're serving and what outcome you want to get to. And you know, a very simple one could be if a local authority is looking at where they want to put a new school, it'd be really helpful to know with the other department's local development plan where they're starting to stake a bunch of new housing. Mm-hmm. And actually, they currently might be doing that decision in isolation. But if they had access to that information or even what neighbouring local authorities are doing, 
that actually then the school they put on the outskirts might actually then have a feed from a, a different borough. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of, well, if we could connect to their information to make our decisions better, mm-hmm. well, why not? And I think it's creating the infrastructure to allow that sort of connection to happen. So, digital twins, breaking down barriers, informing better decisions. Woohoo. Nailed it. Yeah. Cracked it. Okay, we're done. That's, uh, yeah. everybody... <laughs> How do we write the standard? That's what we're talking about next. Uh, well, I, I, from my understanding, writing standards is really easy. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's rewriting the standards that's the hard part. <laughs> it's because uh, it's a, I hadn't realised it. it's an exceptionally collaborative process, and by collaborative, I don't mean. Nice. I think I do mean argumentative. Yeah, no, I do mean. <laughs> yeah, it's the difference between cooperative and collaborative. Isn't yes, it? Oh. indeed, indeed. Cooperative, we work together in unison, and collaborative, we work together. And we, we yeah. But we get there. <laughs> so it feels like, it sounds like to me from what Dan was saying earlier, actually writing a standard at, at this stage, it, it appears like it would be more difficult than, for instance, the BIM standards that came after we had a huge amount of industry learning and you could get experts in who had done it, who could then say, you know what, this worked and this didn't. You're at a much earlier stage now in industry competence and understanding. So what kind of feedback are you getting and how difficult is it to maybe try and preempt what we want so I think that lots of good things in there. I mean, that's why you've got to pick and choose what you choose to standardise. Because mm-hmm. at this point, we couldn't sit there and write a a full kind of schema for how digital twins should work and, and all those data connections, because we're not there yet in mm-hmm. that sense. And Joe, you know, there are there's some very clever people giving that an awful lot of thought at the moment. Um, but you know, starting to think about what it is and isn't, there's a lot of things that we have put thought into in the sense of you know, um, my old classic favourite, isn't a traffic control system a digital twin or not? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, you can boil that down perhaps into what are the four or five characteristics. And if there is general consensus on what those characteristics are and aren't, you've effectively managed to create a scope bubble, for want of a better phrase, that they can be in and they can't be in, which allows you to then start right to definition. And I think what happened and what was quite interesting leading into the work we were doing was that there are very strong thoughts and very passionate people about what should and shouldn't be in some of these things. And I have no attention that I'm one of those people Mm -hmm. and not everyone agrees with all of my views on things. And one that I know that Neil and I often disagree with is that I don't think simulations have any part of digital twin. Mm -hmm. And I think that what it's really about the collecting for reality and yeah, and sending data back. And as soon as you start to simulate, what you've done is you've replaced your actual data set with a hypothetical data set, and you've effectively taken it offline and you've ruined the twinness of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, people come in and say, well, no, the, the ability to simulate is really important. But then at what point are you in the twin or using the twin to do... And, and it's, it's yeah. testing those boundaries to get to where people feel comfortable, where some people will, will turn around and say, no, it has to be in. Others will say, no, it has to be out. And how do you reach a consensus where most people are happy? And that's fascinating because you sort of think then, like, how do you explain that to someone who has a very muted understanding of digital twins in the first place? Because as you were explaining that, I sort of, I got it, it made sense to me. But if you'd have explained that to me maybe even a year ago, I think my brain would have melted out of my ears. Um, And then, well, you know, if a simulation isn't a digital twin, what is it? And do I need to procure that separately? Like, what what does that mean for me? And also, this person who's coming to me and saying they can help me deliver a digital twin, simulation is part of that. Do I need to question that? Like, it does... I, I think you're right. 
actually, and Neil's going to listen to this and, and we'll probably have a conversation afterwards. Um, I, I actually really strongly agree with you. I, does that conversation need to be had right now? And how is it communicated or said in a way that it can be absorbed by the masses? Because we've got two parts here, haven't we? We've got what is a digital twin in the sense of we can write it down, here is a definition. But then we've got language, the vagaries of, of human communication, mm. to try and make sure that those words include within it the scope of what we think it is and exclude what we think it isn't, which is not as simple as, as, as we think it is when we start. So how does that sort of process work? Um, yeah, this is, and, and we've illustrated part of the problem here. So can I, I, I sort of thought, you know, I had three problems when I was trying to write this language. Mm. Um, one was the, um, the very cleansing exercise of writing in the language of a standard. So I realised that I write for engagement, mm. um, uh, which means that I hope people read my stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the, that is not the purpose of writing a standard. You're writing for clarity. So you have to be extremely rigorous in your language. So that, that's a really good standard. If anybody's ever asked to write a standard, be aware that you have to go through that process. Um, the second one is that you then have to, and Dan referred to this, sort of thread the needle of existing documentation. So we had to make it reflect digital twin standards that were already out there, were already emerging. And we, didn't have to, we had to sort of avoid other people's toes. Um, so threading that needle. Um, and then we had to use the um, extreme technical expertise that we had in the advisory group to inform a general audience. And, and as you said, the vagaries of human communication and the fact that that um, technical audience don't always agree, you know, make it a not insignificant challenge. So, so that's, the, you know, that's the jumbo jet of a space shuttle you're trying to land on the six months. Um, so on two, on that threading the needle of existing documentation, um, how do you go about that? What's the sort of process that you do to make sure that you're all lined up? Well, it's due diligence of landscaping and trying to discover what's there. So uh, one, working with a professional institution like BSI. And, of course, working with a professional institution <laughs> like BSI. Um, wow. Invo invoices in the post, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that we, we do, um, aside from when I look at something, I throw in all the references I know, but BSI more formally does domain research, where actually it'll use keywords and it'll look at scopes and it'll explore relevant committees and other bits and pieces and actively look for work that it's relevant. We have a, a planning and approval stage internally where actually these things go amongst everyone and say, look, we're about to write this. And people can say, wow, well, my committee is writing on exactly this topic. What do you think you're doing? So there are one or two or like 10 or 20 or 30 or 50. Now, what's the how many, how many things do you come across? How many artifacts are there? How many needles do you need to line up to perfectly thread <laughs> your standards so through? So this one, I think, was a, Dan will actually give you a proper answer. But I thought this was a particularly difficult one because we had these horizontal standards, so mm. ones going cross domains, and we had existing vertical standards. So um, manufacturing had, had got organised early, um, uh, particularly manufacturing, I think, was yes. a big one that we yes. had to align with, wasn't it? Um, and so you need to... Um, so I'm, I'm not answering the, the question about the number, but you know we had to make it look like... So we had to make it look enough like theirs so they weren't going to reject it. It was more about the complexity, as in yeah. the complexity of, like you said, you're really, yeah, that yeah. vertical horizontal. Yeah, yeah. So the, yes, those. That, so I think this one was peculiarly difficult, but it was my first one. I mean, it it was, it was it had those interesting elements, and of course, what you also it's not just standards that get referenced in there, and it's things like the Gemini principles, it's things like the the academic papers that have come out of 
people like CDBB and others mm-hmm. are all you know are all part of that bibliography and all get referenced into the work as well. So there's there's a lot of different things that can go in there. And the only the only subtle shift I'll give on the, the manufacturing stuff and those interested, it's ISO two three two four seven is the yeah. series. He said um, out of his back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so some things are just locked and I can never get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, but the point was there that they had already a very interesting setup in that their first part was overviewing principles, their second part looked more at um, the general kind of higher level architecture stuff, so effectively it was almost like upper level ontology sort of specification stuff. The third part is more about defining the the target entities and the characteristics of them, which starts to get into um, the reference data library sort of work. That was, So actually there was a very strong similarity between how the manufacturing work had been done mm-hmm. and the work that the National Digital Twin Program was doing by happenstance. Um, so actually, this is one of the reasons why it was set up and it was scoped this way, because we're hopeful that in the future, there'll be a part two, a part three, and a part four that actually can lead off of the work that the information management framework has done, because you can almost see a one-to-one relationship between them, which would then mean if you are doing manufacturing-led approaches and you want to do a digital twin, you could actually see the upper-level ontologies that manufacturing and built environment use, try and smash them together, see what fits, and you know, hopefully build something that could bridge domains. I don't want to be too nice to you, but that's why we use standards, is because you're not going to follow a standard and then realise halfway down the line of following your standard that you've actually contradicted another standard and you've contradicted another approach because it will have incorporated those Hopefully. thoughts Hopefully. and those are well, at least somebody will have gone through the synthesis of arguing vociferously over these points vociferously is not a word i thought i'd be saying today but there we go <laughs> it slipped out so it easily slipped as out. Well. Just, oh, i can't help myself oh i feel better for that um I, I just want to know was there any was there any conflict was there anything that was written elsewhere that you thought either that conflicts with what we want to say, or that conflicted with something else that you were referencing? And was any of it just utter bullshit? Like you thought, no, that's wrong, and we can't include it. So, it, so I, I mean, I'll let Miranda speak for most of it. So I personally thought the, the, the manufacturing stuff, I think, is golden. Actually, reading through it, I think it makes an awful lot of sense, and it's it, a lot of it is really, really good, and especially in the ways it defines digital twins. and every, So I, I, a lot of my recommendations in, because my... My, my simple mind says, if the IT domain have defined an IT term, mm-hmm. listen to IT. Mm-hmm. If, if construction have defined a construction term, use, use what construction have done. And actually, they had some really nice stuff they pulled from the, the IT domains and stuff like that. I think their definition, I won't know it off by heart, but roughly it was like digital representation of target entities um, able to reach convergence uh, at a sufficient rate of synchronicity. Can you say that in English? Uh, digital thing of subject mm-hmm. that can that can get closer to subject at an appropriate frequency. So representing that the digital thing isn't the real thing. You've had to make some. You've had to round some corners or or you know, square off some round edges in order to make it digitally representable. So that standard is nice. ISO two three two four seven part one twenty twenty one automation systems and integration. Digital Twin Framework for Manufacturing. Golden, as Dan yeah. Austin says. Golden. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here uh, thinking, shall I shell out 58 Swiss francs for this? But So so I personally, I pushed a lot of that stuff in, but where the conflict came were when people rejected those established things for their own views. I think that's where a lot of the conflict came through, wasn't it, Miranda? And I think they would say developed. 
because you know, obviously in that you are actually buying it. Uh, so in in that standard, it was written for a specific set of circumstances, and we were trying a more generic set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, is one thing, um, and as I said, you know, we had these these extremely knowledgeable. Um, and argumentative, well, they argue, are used to arguing for their corner and, yeah. and, and are used to being right. Um, but sadly, they couldn't all be right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you said, was there any conflict? Um, I, I don't know how to measure conflict in this setting, um, but uh, we, I wrote the first draft um, with, with, you know, under CVB and guidance from BSI, uh, for which I'm extremely grateful. Catherine Andrews, my handler, was a marvel. Um, and then we let it loose on the advisory group. and. I don't know what normal is, but we had 297 technical comments, mm-hmm. um, which is um, uh, which they were able to say to me is wonderfully high engagement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Made it sound so positive. Yes. Um, well, I saw some of those uh, comments at so that one time that I, that one meeting I went to, yeah. and you know there are occasional spelling, punctuation, grammar yes, points, yes, yeah. occasional, yeah. but the majority of them were fairly robust points about, yeah. you know, fundamental issues. And, and mercifully, they were clustered. So there were sort of three or four areas where people disagreed. And I mean, that's the, po- and that's the glory of the standards process. Mm. It's formalised disagreement. So work out where we disagree and then let's bash it out and get to a position that, on which we can all agree. Um, and that's not always technically possible. Um, and you know, mercifully, the, the group that came together were able to defer to each other um, on certain things, um, and that made binding consensus easier. Um, and, and, there was, and there were some things where people held you know, directly polar views. And, and that's the beauty of this flex format, is that we were able to find some ways of, of reflecting it. But I was very grateful for the advice I took from Anne Kemp-Price at the beginning, where she said, if you have a really good structure for a standard and make the logic flow, that the content is easier to manage within it. Um, so, and I was able to nab that off the, uh, the, uh, the aforementioned standard that you just had hacked into. Two, three, two, there's, four, um, seven. There's, there's one thing that I would say for the, the very little work that I've done with UK BIM Alliance where I've got to see things like the comments and where I've been able to comment on standards. Um, one thing that I always sort of did... Um, I guess by accident or by default that I realise not many other people do is highlight the good stuff oh, as well. When people do that. So I would like I'd highlight a whole paragraph and write yes and capital letters with exclamation marks and I love this this is so right. Yeah. Um, and Dan doesn't do that. It's just <laughs> <laughs> no one does that. that so. You are so right. No, Liz, Professor Liz Varga did that. I think, but I think that's just as important and it useful. Is. So I yeah. guess for anyone out there who gets an opportunity to review any of these kind of standards, please which I'm sure you will, yeah, please Make highlight sure the positive Make sure you include Professor well. Vargo, I think is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, anyone <clears throat> can do it. I mean, anyone can be positive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, anyone can be. And we're, we're <laughs> Moving swiftly <laughs> on. <laughs> anyone can be. No, and that's a sign of weakness. <laughs> but, 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 you know, we're also trying to look in-house at better ways of trying to reflect these things. Because also what you don't want is, if, if everyone thinks it's brilliant, but one person says it's rubbish, yeah. mm-hmm. you've then got one coming to change it, where you haven't actually recognised the 100 people who might have looked at it and were satisfied. Mm-hmm. So we're also, tr- we're, I think we're trying to look in-house at actually, you know, not, not as quick as, well, let's have a like for every clause, and you either like it or you comment. But, but, but you know, it's trying to look at what is the way of reflecting satisfaction versus the one loud voice and these other What's things. What's the ratio? Yeah, exactly. yeah. And I think what was particularly interesting with, with your group 
um, and with me being one of them, it's a new term I've learned as well, is that I, find, I think that most of us in there were what I would call logic bullies. Logic um, bullies. Uh, it, it came from a from a, an Adam Grant podcast where, and the idea was that what you do is you're you argue your point, but you argue it in a way that it's very hard for someone to fight back. So you you because you're throwing you're throwing in either stats or facts and things. You say, well, therefore mm-hmm. it has to be this. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is you are you you oppress others with your logic, and it's it's something that I do all the, all the time, hopefully for good, but. I think in the room, I think the vast majority of us, I think, would fit that archetype of we're trying to sit there. We have, you know, object, uh, you know, uh, objective facts and reasoning behind what we're saying. Ergo, our view is correct, mm-hmm. and it's when those two crash into each other was where the difficulties were. Yeah. Because if you have people who are more, you know, you know, empathetic or collaborative, they can take what you've done, tease it, and move it around. But there were a bunch of very similar viewpoints crashing in potentially diametrically opposed which you know makes for very interesting conversations and i would absolutely concur and and those people haven't reached those logic based positioning um you know they haven't come up with it on a whim or out of badness um and the reason they are extreme technical experts is that they are confident and thorough researchers and it's so it's the balance of skills you need in getting those thorough researchers logic bullies um, to, to to open their eyes, particularly when you're saying, "I know you think you're right," um, but if you know, remembering we're trying to communicate with a generalist audience, you know, being right might not be all that you need. So, if you take this standard, what can people go do with it? It's available on the BSA website, and they can comment. So, with a view to informing the second iteration. Cool. Yes. So you can you can develop it further if you wanted to use it. I oh. think one of the things that you can do with it is is test it against where your organisation plans to go with your digital twin. Because it doesn't tell you how to build one, but hopefully it'll give you a better idea of what it is, what it isn't, or maybe what are some of the infrastructure elements your organisation might need to utilise digital twins, which would allow you to prepare while other work is going on in the background for things like um, integration architectures, foundation data models, and other bits and pieces. This hopefully sets people up so at least they're pointing in vaguely the right direction. Because companies have all these other strategies going on right now that you know are already, in, certainly in large organizations, they you know probably have a data strategy, maybe a digital strategy, maybe an innovation strategy, maybe even an information strategy. You know, there'll be all these different stakeholders within these organizations pushing in a certain direction. So if you can give them something to hang their hat on, they can uh, grasp the term and therefore know where they're going. They can slot it into their kind of grander view of their plan. I feel like it also slightly protects against um, bullish um, vendors and um, potentially uh, panicked procurement. (laughs) Because so many people keep saying to me, and, and I'm in no way an expert in this field, so I can't imagine what people who are an expert in the field are getting. Uh, it's a constant array of LinkedIn messages and emails saying, do I need to get a, vi- a digital twin? Like, do, do I need to think about this now? What, what do I do? And so you think if they're being hammered by people saying, well, I can just give you one, you know, pay us this, pay us that. At the very least, I feel like this standard allows people to read, absorb, educate and go, you know what, actually, A, what you're offering isn't a digital twin. 
um, and B, I don't need it now because now I do see where it might fit in my in my roadmap. So we could protect the un- uninitiated from charlatans, effectively, is what we're saying. But they might not just be vendors. Let's be clear, there are all sorts of charlatans yes. out there. And not all vendors are charlatans. As a vendor myself, yeah, vendors exactly. are terrible. Um, <laughs> hey, sorry, yeah, you're supposed you. to be on your side. What? No, consultants are terrible as well, Thank let's you. be fair. But I think what, one of the things it does as well, I think, is that it shows a good relationship to things like the Gemini principles beforehand. So mm-hmm. if you've decided as an organisation that you're trying to follow the Gemini principles and you think, oh no, I've this, this now is the other direction. No, it's actually a very synergetic direction. The point is then that actually you can read this and go, hang on, my, the approach I was already taken aligns with this document and but also helps formalize it around the other standards they may have to follow because they probably have you know, a 9001 quality management system. Yeah. They might be looking at their 20,001 you know, information security system. And actually, as then it starts to go into the landscape and things start to connect, so interestingly, some of the comments we've gotten so far, um, and I don't have them all in my head, are things like connecting it up to the value management standards. Yeah. You know, because, and actually then for things like the use cases, try and look at actually how does that link to organizational value. And there are some really good European standards for value management. And you know, I think that's a really positive idea of connecting that in. And as more of those sort of comments come in, it's then not this weird, specialist weird thing in the middle. It's actually a node that connects value with citizens, with mm-hmm. health and safety, with other bits and pieces through some digital infrastructure, which is the outcome we're trying to achieve, but it will be reflected in the relationship between the standards. Because this is not about getting a, a new role into projects, into businesses. It's not about having, you know, oh, we have a problem, give it to the digital twin person. Mm-hmm. They will solve that. You know, this is about having something that's much more holistic. Than so that. we don't need digital twin managers. God, I hope. <laughs> I, I don't know yet. Maybe we do. I don't. I, this is the point, though, isn't it? We, we there's that level of specificity that you can and can't go into. How organisations resource developing innovation and digital, How they and digital to twins. Go about it. Yeah, and yeah. maybe they do have a manager. Maybe that's fine. Maybe, maybe they do. You know, maybe they have a digital twin crash, and therefore oh. you can be a digital twin social worker. Uh, and that's not a genuine I'm going to stop now. Okay, digital <laughs> crash is, uh, okay, we've, we've got a buy-in for something I just came up with. Well, I think, as opposed to an ontologist, I think you need an analogist. I think. <laughs> an analogist? Well, we've found mine in job role. So I guess this isn't, this isn't the, the standard to um, trump them all. Like you're, It's not a, we're coming in and redefining. It's no. that, look, here's all the information that you might find elsewhere, plus a little bit of common sense and a little bit of um, support. Would you say, if you didn't look at anything else, that this standard be the, the best place to go as a starting? Yes, yeah. I, yeah. I, I would think if you are concerned that what you're reading is potentially biased and, and you're not sure that you can trust what you're reading, a very good starting point might be to look at Flex 260 mm-hmm. because the idea is that, you know, we, we're very careful about who we sit on our committees to make sure that they are, you know, it's not weighted towards any particular organisations or viewpoints. So it wasn't just, you know, people involved with CTBB. There needed to be people who had not been involved and other bits and pieces mm. to ensure that it's fair and balanced. And, you know, we, we as an organisation, you know, can only exist if our stuff is unbiased, authoritative. You know, it is, you know, it, it needs to be all those things in order for people to be willing to purchase, use, well, in this case, it's free of point of use, but in order to access and engage with that content, otherwise it's useless. 
So I think we, we pride ourselves on it being that sort of thing. And if people want a first step, I would suggest go there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming today. This has been thank a, you for in, having us. It's been an interesting <laughs> chat, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's been lovely. Yeah, I really enjoyed myself. So, so this has been the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. I've been Henry Femby Taylor. I've been Vicky Reynolds. Today, Matthew, I've been Miranda Shah. And I've been Dan Rossiter. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye.